Ready? Are we I'm going to let you take it because it's your home. and I, I, t- I took the introduction yesterday. Now it's your turn to take it. Okay. And now that I've reintroduced you back into the, the mythology of the show. Because he was away for a while. I was running it solo for a little bit. Are we ready? I want to tell Jane more about the mythology of the show. <laughs> Jane and I are ready. I'm, yeah, totally. I'm so ready. I suspect we may already be rolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, I'm just trying in. to kind of figure out <laughs> if I could start talking. Now. Standing on the corner. Suitcase in my hand. Jackson's corset, Jane is in her vest. The Shaky Town Radio Hours on the air. I'm Gene George. I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. I'm still hungover from last week's episode. <laughs> right, I'm Libby that's... Ward, and I'm new. Hey. <laughs> yeah. um, and sitting with us is, uh, I have to say that we've had some folks on the show um, that I have been uh, intimidated by and impressed by. Um, I think Ant Beats was the first guest that I was almost vapor locked about. But this is like, I've trans- I mean, I'm going to say it's Jane Espenson. Yes, thank you. Um, who's if if, if if you like cool things, she's worked probably on at least one or two episodes of every kind of cool uh, nerdy show, awesome show that's come along in the last twenty years. Twenty years. This is my twentieth year in show business. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm like I've kind of transcended. I'm I'm like I've moved past the the wall of you know. You're a good guest to have on the show, and you're awesome. <laughs> and happy uh, showbiz anniversary. And happy Thank show- you, that's right. What, what is the 20th anniversary yeah, what, for showbiz? Yeah, what do they issue you? Is it, <laughs> do you get like a new stripe or star? Or? It's like a kick in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the same thing for every year that they're in show business. Yeah, I've actually been treated very, very well by show business. I, I love it, and I recommend everyone run away from home and join show business. So so if, if someone is in has been... Uh, in like a North Korean labor camp for 20 years. Um, uh, let's just oh, like Buffy and yeah. Angel and Battlestar Galactica. And I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount of nerd cred. Um, Torchwood and Game of Thrones. Yeah, 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 exactly. Gilmore uh, Girls in the OC. Uh, yeah. And now I'm on Once Upon a Time and Husbands. Yeah. So we'll talk about all that stuff. And, Absolutely. And. And my daughter may actually appear on the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, um, this is our first podcast back in the uh, original Shaky Town Studios. Yep. Um, we breaking news. We found ladybugs, ladies and gentlemen. Oh my goodness! Look at that. Uh, Matilda Quinn, my daughter. You're on the radio. You're on. Yeah. What did you find? Ladybugs. How many ladybugs? Two. <laughs> She's saying two. She's holding up five fingers. It's adorable. It is adorable. Probably like ten in there. Okay. Well, you know what? We need to put them on on all the plants so that they can eat the bad bugs. We can't keep them, and you need to be careful with them. We're just yeah, don't don't smash them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's not do that. Say what you're about to do. There's air holes in the bags. Oh, good. Ladybugs are in there screaming. I think they're probably just like this leaf has nothing to eat on it. All right. Be careful with them. Thank you, Matilda. That was the science portion of the show. Right. As we do every show. So, Jane, I thought... Welcome to Entomology Week. (laughs) I feel like I'm either about to say something very clever or something you've heard a million times before. You come from, Jane Espenson here, the writer, who is like a a god among writers' groups 
around Los Angeles. You are originally from Story County. I am. I'm from Story County, Story. Iowa. Story. That's right. St- I, you know, I nobody's ever commented on that, and it's never occurred to me. Holy moly. Yeah. Wow, Brody. Wow. So, Very nice. You should get really hungover. <laughs> Shaky <everybody>. Town exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, right. you're from Ames, Iowa. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of love for Iowa and Iowans. Tell me about... Um, your experience there as a kid it was it was great it's a fantastic place to grow up in um i think you can get sort of stuck in small town with limited opportunities but um but ames was a, was a great place and um my dad taught at the university there and my mom worked at the university and we all grew up sort of do every recreation everything was centered around the university so you sort of went seamlessly from high school into college, even though I came out here to Berkeley. It was sort of, yeah. felt like I'd been in college forever. And then I stayed in college forever at Berkeley. Right. Uh, so it was, it was, uh, it was a really good childhood that was, that was destined to make you a thoughtful person, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Story County. It's right. Is that right next to the continuity county? In <laughs> How awesome would that be? Was your, was your whole childhood narrated? Was there like a oh. an omnipresent narrator? The Earl, Earl Hammer from the Walton. Yes, yes. The she opened year. the door. It was her first day of school. No, there was no there was no great portent. Now, was... <laughs> yeah, so you you were interested in writing from an early age. Yeah, I so. knew not just I wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to be a TV writer. Um, so I was, but it looked impossible all the way through college. It looked impossible. How do you get into this business? It's yeah. a business that seems to be presented as like, oh, you must have to grow up here with a bunch of connections. Um, and and I realize now that there's probably young people growing up thinking the same thing. And it's it's not true. There are new writers every year, and the writers that I meet come from everywhere. Uh, you, it's not, it's 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 a hard system to get into, but it's not impossible if you, if you've got talent. And it seems to be it seems to be a true. I mean, aside from the the you know clunkers that everybody seems to hear about or think about or whether they exist or not, it seems to be a meritocracy. I mean, it really is. If you know, you get good stuff in front of the right people. It's getting good stuff in front of the right people. I, I agree. I think there's still barriers to to women and older writers and and diverse writers of all kinds getting mm-hmm. in. It is still people tend to hire people who they're comfortable around, and it's just automatically they end up hiring people who look like them and have a similar background. Right. Um, but I, I like to think it's changing. Certainly the f- notion that talent is distributed equally across uh, people, like, like that you are like, as likely to find it in people of different kinds as, yeah. as not, is, is something people are consciously aware of, even if their subconscious is still in the old pattern. So I, I've got to think it's changing. Well, I mean, I have to say as, as pretty much, you know, I guess demographically, I represent the establishment as being a a white dude of middling ed- age and education. I, I mean, I feel it's hard for me. I can't imagine and my my experiences aren't necessarily you know the mainstream you know, suburban youth thing myself, but I think that if I think it's hard, I can't imagine how you know it might be from for someone who you know is a different color or yeah. uh, you know sexual orientation or whatever. Absolutely. And it's, it's actually interesting how many young white guys come up to me and say, oh, I'm at a disadvantage because I'm a white young white guy and everybody's looking for diversity. Should I pretend to be whatever? And it's like, no, dude, look around. Look at the, look at the makeup of the staff. Right. So if you think you're at a disadvantage, 
Um, no. You know, yeah, no, you're not. No. You're, you're, you're doing. I just great. think it's hard in general. I, I just think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the bar is pretty high to begin yeah. with as a dude who, in theory, has an advantage. Right. Um, right. Much think, less for someone who is, in theory, you know. I think right. there's Hobbled. a there's a sneaky little something of it feels good to feel at a disadvantage because then you the then you don't well then you don't right. put no, all the blame on yourself. Then you don't think, mm, oh my right. my writing sucks or right. you go, oh well that the odds are stacked against me so it's true. No one wants to come in and, and, and think like, yeah, this should be easy. What's going wrong? Right. Yeah, right. You want to find be able to point at the thing that's making things go wrong. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. And in fact the thing that makes things go wrong for you in writers is just that, that there's so few jobs as a mm-hmm. T V writer. It's like in an MBA. That is the analogy I heard when I was starting out. Was they said there are fewer full time positions as a TV writer than there are positions in the yeah. NBA. <laughs> and that, yeah. But and that I was ha- when stats were bigger. Yeah, but I have to say though, it, it, nowadays it seems like you can essentially form your own semi-pro yes. <laughs> basketball right. team if yeah. you really want to, and if you're if you're you know. Um, conscientious about what you're doing and really trying to make a good product absolutely uh, yeah let I me mean, look look at what felicia day has the what has felicia day wrought <laughs> and it's like the, yeah no the, the world has opened up to these homegrown shows mm-hmm. and, and i mean I, I have one myself that my online show husbands yep. um which you can see at husbandstheseries.com uh and so people out there can create their own world and if yeah. they do it meticulously yeah. um and even if even if you were just using it to create a sample to help yourself get hired in mainstream TV, right? Um, then you know you, you're saying, oh, "How do I get in front of a million people?" Well, you don't really have to. You have to get it in front of a few people who count. Yeah, well, and and that's kind of when uh, uh, I was at the the Nerdist Writers Panel uh, last week, and it feels like it was like a million. Years ago. <laughs> and, and that's really briefly. That's the uh, we talked about it before, but it benefits eight two six LA. Ben Blacker of Thrilling Adventure Hour moderates a panel of writers at the Meltdown Gallery or Nerd Melt, I guess it's called now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's awesome. Great. Check yeah. it out. If you're uh, if you're in the greater Los Angeles area and are interested in writing, especially writing for TV and film and, you know, the in new media in general, uh, it's just invaluable. And the podcast, if you're not in the greater Los Angeles area, the podcasts are on uh, Nerdist's website and, and listen to them and they're Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and Jane, uh, talking about the web series, and excuse my naivete on the subject, but how do you make money at a web series, or is it mostly a showcase for how awesome you are? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know how awesome I am, but it is it, right now we are not monetizing it at all because uh, our our goal right now is to get a whole bunch of views. So we didn't monetize season one. Season two, we are paying for in a combination of my money, like we paid for season one, combined with this Kickstarter campaign that's currently in progress. If you go to Kickstarter and search for husbands or go to Google and search for Kickstarter husbands, <laughs> you'll find it. Um, and this is uh, we're, we're raising money to help us do a season two. And we've reached our initial goal, and now we want we want more so we can do it bigger and better like longer episodes bigger like do it really big big um and we're not but we're not going to pull money out of of the season either where that that is we are going to sit there on the web being sparkly gorgeous content um with an eye toward this future that is coming at us like a jet engine with in which 
content will be a valuable commodity to to own. I, I, so, <clears throat> so yeah, it's, so it's it's, more it's, it's kind of ineffable right now because it's right. yeah, what we are, what we are doing right now is we are providing what we think is a great show, and just we're happy that people are seeing it. If it turns into a show in the future that self sustains, like mm-hmm. I don't ever see us like pulling profit out of this thing. I'm not in this to do to make profit. Right. I'm, I I do just fine from working on TV, but if this could be a thing that sustains itself. Um, so that it pays for its own production, that would be wonderful because that way we could make it for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, we would love that. Yeah. <laughs> I would love yeah, that. I mean, and in general, that model, that sort of, you know, uh, like a terrarium, you know, it's self sustaining <laughs> and right. you can do and, and you can, you can, you know, be creatively fulfilled and have, because that was the question that, that came up at the writers' panel that was sort of half formed in my head is with all this content, I mean, ways to get stuff out there. Um, well, specifically, my question was, so for you as a professional who's been in the business for a very long time and is used to the constraints of, of having a showrunner telling you what to do or having the network telling you what to do right. as a showrunner, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I wonder you know, how many people are really going to be able to make that transition from a product that they create themselves if they do manage to sell it to you know, a network or you know, a Production oh, I see what you're talking about. Like people who grow up now in the new era yeah. of, of online shows yeah. and going to big TV. Where someone and, walks yeah. in and says, right. that character that you love that is the right. central part of the, the, your mm-hmm. show, yeah, we need to make it something totally different. Well, we happen <laughs> to be living right now in an age where like the cro and the Neanderthals are both living at the same time. <laughs> and and I, I wonder how long this will be the case, that there is big TV and online shows. Uh, I think we may we may be headed for a place where they merge and you get some sort of hybrid of the two. We get yeah. more creativity, but we still now we have some sort of uh, internet bosses who are doing the, the analyzing the analytics and saying, "Oh, you're losing the guys, you're losing the young right. guy," or what? Yeah. Like put in more of this, put in more of that. So it may it may turn into something new, which has aspects of someone guiding the content towards the viewers and and. Someone just putting their creativity on, on up on its feet. And, well, I think yeah. ineffable is a really good word because there's so many things that we just can't even talk about in terms of how is how is this going to be a commodity if it can even be a commodity? Are people going to pay? I know I pay for a couple of um, podcasts and things like that. Uh, like I never got funny Jimmy Pardo's podcast. I actually pay money for because I'm willing to like that's worth my money. Yeah, it's, um, it's, what well, what's that model going to look like ultimately? Yeah, how, oh, yeah, how are people yeah. going to pay for? Content yeah, well, it seems there's a fair amount of like pay per show, like some of the podcasts, yeah. or things you can download, mm-hmm. and then Kickstarter is more or less like a pledge drive, right? Yeah, it's very much like a pledge drive, and it, and yeah, including the tote bags, you know. Like, <laughs> right, right, exactly. We wanted to make sure people just didn't feel that we were picking their pockets to go have fun. That we we gave them you know value for what they were donating, and and um, you know you you'll get more of the show that you like, and you'll get like a really cool Battlestar Galactica artifact of some kind. So, <laughs> right. Um, it, people seem people seem to really like it, and and but yeah, what yeah, what is the model going to be, or how are people paying for it? Don't know. The I I like to think that you know this world of internet shows is ineffable, but I know on husbands my cast is extremely effable. Oh yeah, yeah, no. I the things that the, I think the things that that it's are. <laughs> That's, yeah, all right. All right. Look, writer, writer, he said. <laughs> uh, oh. 
All right. Like usually, I, you know what? Like, I, this, I, I usually reserve that kind of reaction to Brody. <laughs> Welcome uh, to the club. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I, I think I, you know, joking aside, the stuff that's that you're in control of is the same stuff that you're in control of if you're doing any, any project. It's just that weird interface of here's a big bucket that everything on the internet goes into, mm-hmm. and, you know. And it'll it'll work itself out. Some some model will emerge, and in the meantime, we're just trying to make a really good, really funny show of a kind that you can't get on big TV. Um, They don't make romantic comedies um, of this sort. Um, They're willing to deploy gay characters in other ways, but romantic comedy seems to be the forbidden genre. Right. Yeah. And let's talk about yeah, nobody, that premise. Nobody wants to see dudes kissing. Um, that, let's yeah. talk about yeah, wait, the wait, premise wait. of husbands. I, I, I was thinking about this. So, what so, were you thinking about? Uh, so Husbands is a show about a newly married couple. Right. And the twist is there's no twist. because <laughs> <laughs> The twist uh, is that they're both boys. Yeah. 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 But, I, but I think honestly, really what we're looking for is the twist is there's no twist. It just happens to be about two dudes. That right. That's true. That's a good point. There will be stories that we tell that you couldn't tell about a different gendered couple. Right. But a lot of the stories are just newlyweds trying to figure out how this works. And, right. um, and our slogan is, they're doing it wrong, that's their right. And, <laughs> and we feel that that's like, like, it sort of cuts to the core of what this is yeah. about, which is about everybody goes into marriage not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. And this couple is no different from any other couple. Watch them figure out. It's, it's more about the difference in their two personalities than it is... Uh, Which is every relationship. Yeah, exactly. In real yeah. life or on, on the page. It's yeah. like, that's the, you know, those tensions drive everything. Right. Yeah, and, and that's... I'm kind of like... I've been giving it a lot of thought in leading up to this show, and, and I just... I can't... And, and maybe it's my... There are some things that I can get up into other people's business about, but there are very few of those things. And who marries whom and who has a relationship with whom is just, I have no energy to yes, care. I know no, it's why beyond anyone, me. Why, anyone yeah, why, anybody, why anybody expends any energy. It's like, do you not have laundry to do? Do you not have, you know. Yeah, your own marriage to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like, yeah, why worry about Volunteer in a soup kitchen. And, and, you know, it's like yeah. before you worry about who, you know, is, is married to whom or screwing whom, it's like that. And I, I always want to root for love. Love is hard yeah. enough anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if people are in love, yay, you're in love. Good and job. Like, yeah, love is like the core of the best storytelling. I mean, I'm a huge Jane Austen fan. And it's like, there she had like social boundaries as the barrier. And it's like, we've run out of barriers in our society. So if, if you want to write a great romantic comedy... Um, there's n- nothing like that. Who else is fighting a battle for love right now? Right. Like mm-hmm. story-wise, what a wonderful, <laughs> yeah. rich arena. And better yet, and, and better yet, it's it's something that's. I mean, you've written on shows where you know monsters and people fall in love, right? and this is like doesn't even need to be allegorical. It's like this is real. These yeah, are there are absolutely. people struggling with this now. It's it's you know it's it's current drama, and it's and it's it's not. It doesn't have to be couched in any sort of Right, yeah, yeah, we are we aren't doing it to make a point, but the fact that there is a reason for the show to exist is yeah. is what gives it um, its booster fuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's obviously not like a you know. It's a, not a, a polemic, right? Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah, we just it's just a comedy, but we're I think it's it's a comedy of a quality that I'm really proud to be able to put out there. 
I, yeah, and, and I think that's sort of what, what the conclusion I sort of came to thinking about it is, is you can you can let it stand on its merits and it's like it's a floor wax and a dessert topping. It's yes, like, <laughs> shimmer. Shimmer is a floor wax and a dessert topping. Yeah, and, and you don't have to like in your face everybody mm-hmm. unless you want to. Right. And you can yeah. you can certainly point to it and say, haha, it's also this. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know the, the show so, uh, was conceived kind of by you had met, I don't know what to call him, Cheeks or Brad Bell? I, I use both in what we called free variation. Okay. Um, yeah, Cheeks is the name of the persona that he's developed. Right. His, his name is Brad Bell. And, yeah, he had the idea of doing a, a web series with him and Alessandro Torresani, who I had worked with on Caprica. And he sort of developed this idea of the two of them as young young actors in L.A. And... It just, I was the one who said, like, I feel like this needs something else. It needs that yeah. boost. Uh, and he said, what if what if this was really about a young married couple? And I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that show, like, and, and that show, I was convinced at the time, like, that show will be on NBC in five years, and it'll be called Husbands, and let's do it first. Yes. Now I'm not so sure it's going to be on NBC. I think, I think... Uh, that content may live on the web, and people will find it there. And when it all becomes one box, that will, will it will have grown out of something, grown out of maybe us. Um, so uh, I instantly saw, okay, that's a show. I wanna, I, I think we can write a great show. And he went off that night and wrote the first draft of what became season one of Husbands. Uh, and and we continue to write it. Um, sometimes I'll take a first pass at a. These, one of these little mini episodes, and sometimes he will. But we rewrite each other, and we have very good. Um, our joke writing styles, our tastes in jokes are the same. <laughs> like we speak with the same voice, so it really makes it a very simpatico thing. Because yeah. um, we both. It's not you're, it, you're fighting against the tide. On... Yeah, it's it's not like sometimes you work with a writer and you're like, yeah, that's exactly how you tell the joke. Here's why I don't think that's the funniest way to tell that. <laughs> With Brad and me, it's like, yep, that's it. You found it. Or, no, you didn't find it yet. And the other one will go, yeah, I know. Like, it's, we, we know when we hit the That definitely up. shortens your work days a little bit. Yes. Generally, usually I find working with a partner makes everything twice take twice as long. Mm-hmm. Because you're not, you don't just have to write what you want to write. You have to unwrite what they wrote. Twice as long. This and, case, and you have to yeah. defend your yes, position. You have to make the, the case instead of just saying, "Look, it it, it it works," and I'm turning it in. You have to go like, "No, it works," and here's why. Um, yeah, with Brad, we write very very well together. Where it's just like, "Yep, you did that bit. I did this bit. Put them together. Good." I assume writing partnerships. Uh, one person sits in an Underwood typewriter <laughs> with, a, with a bottle of scotch. <laughs> and the other one uh, smokes a cigar in their shirt sleeves and, and marches up and down the room. <laughs> it's like the Dick Van Dyke show. I'm Rose Marie. I get to bow in my hair in the typewriter. <laughs> Brad lies on the sofa and dictates. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, uh, can, can I have the scotch and paste? <laughs> well, I think I think so. I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're managing the cigar. So when when like you're changing the uh, paper in the typewriter, that's <laughs> put the cigar down and have okay, a slice scotch. <laughs> now I want to shoot back to the past again for a moment yeah. here. Uh, after you got to Berkeley, right? Um, you were doing linguistic studies with George Lakoff. That's right. And he, yeah, I mean, like you did really really significant work. I, I, George certainly did. <laughs> I don't know if I did. We, he's um, the guy. He wrote metaphors. We, metaphors we live by, um, which is a seminal work in semantics and and the notion of metaphor as a mechanism by which we express how we are actually conceiving the world. Um, so we really do think of life as a journey, 
um, and make judgments based on that about how one should live. Right. Totally based on the fact that we've, we've structured the way we speak about life around all these words that have to do with the journey. Uh, and you can you can learn deep things about how we structure the world this way. I was working on the notion of causation and that we don't seem to be able to understand causation in any way except for physically moving objects around. Right, right, right. Um, and uh, it, I think it was really a powerful influence in my life in terms of, sort of shaping how I think about thinking. Um, and it, I think it's interesting that I was already a fan of science fiction when I got there my love of science fiction has ended up shaping my career, and science fiction is all about metaphor. It's all about yeah. understanding how we look at our world by looking at it through a lens. Effing the ineffable. Effing <laughs> the ineffable. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so I I I suspect I would have loved the same shows and maybe written for the same shows if I hadn't studied metaphor. But yeah. it's it's sure a nice it's sure a nice conflation. It lines up very nicely. For sure. Yeah. For sure. No, while we're in the past, I actually want to make another digression back again. Uh-huh. Just, I have this nagging curiosity because I grew up being unallowed to watch television. Oh. So I'm just wondering if there was a show or a moment you can point to when you said, I really want to be involved in TV, and then a moment when you realized writing for TV was a real thing that was a job that people had. And yeah, we you, talked about this last and night. And you could do. Yeah, Jean and I have, have talked about this mm-hmm. because I didn't realize for the longest time. It's a real job. It's a real job. Well, you didn't yeah. realize it was a thing. For yeah, a yeah, I didn't even know it was a thing. a job that people might have uh, to right. do that thing. My best friend growing up, I had a really close friend who lived two houses down from me in Margate, and Margate was from an old world family, old mm. sort of Dutch family, and they did not have a TV, and she would come over and watch TV at my house, and it was so funny, like, watching her, like, not get stuff that to me felt like it was baked into my bones about TV. Right. What were you guys watching? Oh, we were watching The Love Boat and Welcome Back, Cotter and Carol Burnett Show and and Mary Tyler Moore and and The Odd Couple and Barney Miller and the, the shows of that time. Yeah. yeah. And Mash uh, was the one where I had the moment of this is a real job. Um, I've told the story before. I was reading an interview in you know parade or tv guide or something and they were interviewing one of the women writers on that show and she was talking about how when when people when young writers would send in spec scripts they would often take on a topic that they would only take on internally like colonel potter's wife dying like we wouldn't give that to a freelancer so they're not specking the right things and it was like in this one paragraph it was like okay there's writers on the show this one's a woman. They take spec scripts. People can create their own stories for the show. Like it was all you extrapolated happened. all of yes, that from yeah. like a paragraph. Yes, because that was what that paragraph was about. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, and that's... it was yeah, it was like okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. And I sat down and wrote a mash spec script. Um, awesome. Which that sounds like a gets, sign. Yeah, yeah. It really it felt like <clears throat> it. Um, but I had I had been before that I had been looking at those names on the TV screen mm-hmm. and going okay there's writers and I've seen that name before I've seen the name Asad Kalada or whatever you know uh, or April, April Kelly and Karen Hall like I saw those names go by and the women's names jump out at you yeah um, and as you I'm sure know you mm-hmm. know like the way a woman's name jumps out at you and it's not a place you've seen a woman's name before um, and that just really was like okay this is what I'm going to do but. I had that sense of like, well, other than that one paragraph, that's the only thing I've ever read that gives me the indication there's any kind of open door there. So I sort of set it aside. I'd come back to it every now and then. As an undergraduate, I wrote 
a perfect stranger's spec script and then realized that really wasn't a show that was speckable. Um, <laughs> Do you remember what subjects you, uh, you covered in your master? Sure. Oh, yeah. Charles, uh, we learned that Charles had actually been committed to sort of an arranged marriage in his fancy Boston family. And so he had this fiancé back home that he actually didn't really know very well. And she made her way to Korea as like a war correspondent to like find him and, and be with him. But she was having so much fun as a war correspondent, she realized she didn't want to marry him anymore. Fun. Yeah. Nice. And it's actually, when you think of it, like a marriage of two people who don't know each other very well, like it was a husband. Yeah. Or in a sort of a way. And then you didn't look up the address in TV Guide and send it. You just wrote it and there it was sort no of sat address. on a shelf. There was yeah. no, all there was was that one sentence that had now. I, I bet you if you, if, if you just, just address it to MASH, like Santa, yeah. Santa like Just like Hollywood, Santa, California. yeah. MASH, care of Hollywood, California. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I think or Perfect Korea. Strangers was actually written by an early form of uh, computer program. <laughs> kind of TRSA I, or <laughs> I love Perfect Strange. I thought there's some very clever writing in Perfect Strange. Oh, yeah, yeah Gene, don't be ridiculous. I'm just like. being dumb. I'm being my As irreverent self. Say. <laughs> no. um, but yeah. <laughs> TV's miss- Bronson Pin Show. Yes. That's, there's commitment. We talked about crunchy characters and commitment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> commitment. You can find us on the internet at shakytownradio.com. You can Twitter us at, at @shakytownradio. You can like us on Facebook at our Facebook page, facebook.com/shakytownradio. Send us an email at shakytownradio@gmail.com at or call us on the Shakytown Radio hotline at 626-66-SHAKE. That's 667-4253. That's the same number. Hi, this is Beth Grant, and sometimes I doubt your commitment to Shakytown Radio. Get with it. episode of television was an episode of dinosaurs where they went to a version of Disneyland I hate dinosaurs and not not because it was a bad show <laughs> but that was one of the shows that was on uh, the uh, uh, syndicated version was on in the mornings I had a horrible temp job in a chair factory <laughs> so every morning when I woke up I turned the TV on and that and dinosaurs <laughs> was on it's totally like shock therapy. <laughs> like, and people mention dinosaurs. Like, I found like a like a like a, a baby dinosaur squeeze toy uh-huh. like, that had, I don't know, somehow gotten into my stuff at some point. And I, when I saw, I literally like went, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> horrible. Uh, the baby. We all pitched the baby jokes in the baby voice in the room. Oh, oh that, yeah, yeah funny. Uh, you have to. Are, are we ready to go? Yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, well, wait, just the. the that the end of that show was like the biggest bummer of oh my almost God. any show. It was brilliant. That yeah, it was perfect. Okay. Yeah, but it, it was horrible. I was in the room when uh, you know, the showrunner Bob Yang, who was genius and the gentlest, nicest showrunner for my first boss, said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna kill off all the characters. <laughs> Earl's gonna cause the ice age, and all our characters are gonna go extinct." And uh, and I'm going to write the scene of the father telling his baby son that they're all going to die, but he's going to be there with him at the end. And I don't need you guys to pitch jokes because I'm just, you can sit here and watch as it goes up on the monitor, but I'm just going to write this. And we all sat there and it's watched horrible. him write this scene. I think that's awesome. Father. No, no, I mean, I, it was, it was, it was it, I mean, it's it horrible. Was, right. It's horrible. In I need like, to watch that. It's awesome yeah. in that you, you are in awe of it. <laughs> it See, like all, you, all of my TV viewing, excepting the last maybe five years, has all been me catching up. So it's right. all been completely out of order. Right. And so I didn't ever see the end of that show. It's, but that's it's so exciting. Worth, it's worth uh, checking out. Uh, <laughs> when I when I was 
uh, doing archaeology and uh, I was off on. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was an archaeologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's so cool. I want to hear about the archaeology. I will. Uh, Today on Archaeology Podcast. I, I've talked about it. I'll, when we're off the air, I'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but since it was a seasonal job, I was out of work, working in chair factories and things like that. And um, one cycle of being out of work, um, I was staying up really, really late and watching whatever was on TV. And I started watching um, Forever Night. Uh-huh, sure. And I, That's <laughs> and I, and I came in, uh, I came in probably pretty far along, and, and it was one of those, uh, it was like a double whammy, because it was Forever Night, and then Magnum P.I. was on right afterwards. Nice. And so I started watching Forever Night, and like four episodes in, like everybody gets killed. <laughs> and, and I'd just gotten AOL. We'd just gotten dial-up. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was like 95, 4 maybe. Yeah. And um, and I, so I went on, went past for the internet to try and figure out, hey, wait a minute. What the hell? Did everybody just die on the show? I mean, they're vampires, so they can come back. There's a theory. Nice. You know, I, I, you know I, and, and it was like the first instance of me finding out like, CBS pulled the plug on it, and, and there are no more, and that's the ending of the show. And I'm like, oh, crap. But then, no lie, the next episode of Magnum P.I. was the finale of Magnum P.I. Oh, wow, and I don't know if somebody cool. at whatever local station yeah. you know, planned that out, like we're being clever, but I'd forgotten, how, I, I'd completely forgotten the end of Magnum, where he dies. Spoiler alert, if you haven't watched Magnum P.I. But, but yeah, and it's like, he just dies. And talking about like, a horrible right. this character that you especially as you know a young kid he's like the most awesome guy who lives in Hawaii has a friend with a helicopter drives a Ferrari <laughs> and basically lives right free in a mansion has a cool mustache you know, <laughs> can pull off a Hawaiian shirt and was like a Navy SEAL well now maybe I'm remembering this wrong but I thought that that was meant to be the season, uh, series finale then they got renewed for another season and they brought him back from the dead I don't that recall maybe, that, but that that sounds familiar. I'm maybe I stopped watching it because I was like, right? Yeah. Nobody told you there's more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they brought uh, him back. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sure the internet box can tell us that. But and then you find out like, wasn't there like a hidden guy that nobody knew, and it turns out it was his assistant the whole time? Oh, Higgins was Robin Masters. That yeah. sounds right too. Yeah, but I'm not an expert on. Yeah. No. But but talking about that like right the the really genuine a genuine finale yeah yeah when I was a kid shows almost never knew that they weren't coming back right um, so you never had that sort of episode that ended a series and, and now you do all the time and to be honest I mean I'm just trying to think of I mean like when season finales written as series finales just in case right yeah yeah, I, yeah I, I, a lot I, of that. I, I'm just trying to think of shows that I can recall I watched a lot of comedy growing up but. Like, I never watched the Waltons or things that had, you know... But those were kind of self-contained stories, too. Yeah, Waltons was was not highly serialized. Um, yeah, it, the notion that TV has become more novelistic is a really recent thing. Yeah. You don't feel that same pressing need to watch it all as it's happening. It's all highly serialized. It sits, you know, you buy the DVD, and you, it sits on your shelf like a novel. And, it like, just, like, someday you'll get around to reading Anna Karenina, and someday you'll get around to watching All of the Wire... And you watch it in a weekend. Oh, the sh- yeah, it, or yeah, the Shield, which we got yeah. into, and like 
Yeah. Can't not watch the next episode. My my wife is like is like I can't believe they did that cliffhanger of an. I'm like it, it, it's a TV show. They want you coming back next week. Right. Why do you think they're not being a holes? <laughs> right. And the lovely thing about about experiencing it as a novel is that those cliffhangers you can yeah, 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 yeah. it right now. Put in the next. Right. Well, that was actually one of the things that kept me away from Buffy for so long that it was serialized. And I had a friend who was really into you know was a total Buffy evangelist. And it's like great it's really great and and i thought back to some of the stuff that he liked before i'm like yeah you wanted me to get into robotech too yeah. <laughs> um but uh like it's the reverse of the dinosaurs thing uh every morning when i'd wake up fox or fx was rerunning buffy and i happened right. to catch it um like right actually i happened to catch it right after that first half Season. Oh right, yeah. Where I'm gonna say first season, and not not as good as the other seasons. It was it was a different it was a little different format. Yeah. Um, it was the monster of the week, and I I personally have a great affection for those first two seasons where it was much more standalone. I loved the way Joss would take take a sort of teen problem find the way to demonize yeah. it like it really was the metaphorical lens. You could watch them in any order. Yeah. And you, like I the the episode with um, John Ritter uh, the Ted episode oh, yeah. just like blew me away like uh, and the hyena one like and the invisible girl like there were there was just some real standouts yeah there. no no like, and, 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 and it, I, I know it's one of my later favorite. on it became yeah. this, this fantastic epic and yeah. it was not yet that yeah yeah but specifically like that first whatever mm-hmm. 12 or 13 episodes mm-hmm. where it was really kind of rough and if I if I hadn't been a fan and bought the box set and then watched it, I was like, I know what this is going to become. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, there's a lot of goodwill you can burn with a slightly crummier version of the show that becomes really, really good. Yeah, it's really amazing. I'm, uh, I really, that, that was the big luck turn for me, it was getting yeah. on Buffy. Yeah. yeah. Well, in all of those shows, for me, I'm not a person that seeks out sci-fi just because it's sci-fi. Right. But I had... Uh, ex-boyfriends who were really into Firefly and then Buffy mm-hmm. and I'd sit down and watch them and the writing was so great and the story arcs were awesome and I loved the characters that it was like just watching an amazing show that happened to be full of vampires. Absolutely. And now I'm just a full-on Joss Whedon Well, again, yeah. whether it's, yeah. you know, whether it's a same-sex couple or monsters, it doesn't matter if right. the heart of the writing is about Absolutely. the relationship and not about... This happens to be someone who bleeds from his eyes, <laughs> or whatever. It's really true. Like, yeah, all TV, all storytelling, ultimately is about something like how should one live, or something like, like right. yeah. And and you know that Kirk has that great line about, no, I'm from Iowa. I just work in outer space. Like, like it's <laughs> sci-fi is just setting, uh, yeah, to a certain degree. Right. Like, like the events of Battlestar Galactica. Could happen on a regular aircraft carrier. It doesn't have to be a space and ha- carrier. And similar yeah. things have happened right. in history. You right. know, yeah, mean, a big exodus. Exodus, yeah, uh, yeah uh, you know, displaced people right. are happening. Yeah, there are refugee camps that are, I'm right. sure, going through exactly the same oh, as new water shortages yeah. and, you know, and, and attacks by bandits and things like yeah. that that are exactly the same as they're just not on cool spacecraft. <laughs> so or, why not be on a cool spacecraft if you have the option? <laughs> right, right, right. And so you'd had that backing up you had that mash spec and then you right. had a perfect stranger had a perfect spec. stranger spec but none of these <laughs> caught fire none of these led to a career so i was i was bumming around in grad school working with lakoff and doing yeah. my cognitive science thing and um uh, i think he was very 
excited that I was, you know, getting to that dissertation part of the PhD and he was going to have me out there. Like, um, and then I ran away and joined show business. Um, <laughs> I wrote Star Trek Next Generation spec scripts and, and got a little bit of an inroad there where I was coming down and pitching at Star Trek. And then someone there told me about the ABC Disney Writers Fellowship. Mm -hmm. I got into that, and that necessitated moving down here. Right. Allowed me to move down here, because I was so happy. Um, and I had to leave grad school and leave the degree unfinished, and just like, okay, I'm going to go do this now, George. Sorry. Hooray. Yeah, hooray. Now, who did you give your uh, next-gen spec to? That they actually had an open door. It was oh. anyone can submit scripts for Star Trek Next Generation to Star Trek Next Generation, and they will read them. And then if they if they liked it, they would invite you to come down and pitch for the show. I know awesome. it's been unheard of since, but been probably previously unheard of, right? Yeah, I think it was very much an aberration. That was just a thing that the Trek shows did. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've never understood if it was out of the kindness of their heart or a genuine motivation to get new voices in the business. Yeah. But I suspect a lot of it was simply that. Um, they would run out of story ideas. They were having a hard time generating them internally. And they're like, we've yeah. got this great devoted fan base. Let them let them contribute. It sort of was an early version of, of Twitter in a way of like, we can actually talk to the fans. Crowdsourcing. Yeah, 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 sort of. Yeah, I remember when I, because I grew up in Phoenix, and I remember when the episode Clues aired, mm -hmm. and it was like a Phoenix guy who had written it, and it was like a nice. in the paper, like, a Phoenix guy got on script. Yeah, and there's a very famous one, The Measure of the Man, which is one of the best episodes, was um, written by Melinda Snodgrass, and I believe the story is she submitted it as a spec, and they produced it. So there was this grail, this attainable grail, a, a, a grailable, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, and I wrote, I wrote three specs and sent them in, and they called me about one of them and said, come in and pitch, so... It would be these. The, I would look Exciting. forward to these days for like yeah. six months. They'd set a day like six months in advance, and you'd spend all the time in between like prepping your pitch. And then that day, I'd walk um, to the to the BART station, go to the Oakland airport, fly down to Burbank, um, and then like get myself to Paramount. Um, and I don't know why I wasn't flying into LAX for some reason. The Oakland to Burbank flight seemed to be like. Because uh, Burbank's an awesome airport. It's, Burbank is an awesome yeah. airport. That's really, so especially in the days before... Frank Sinatra walk off the plane. Yeah. In the days before 9-11, yeah. Burbank was yes. like the closest to getting on like the Skyway at yeah. Disneyland. Yeah. Where you mm -hmm. just walked into yeah. the airport, you know, you, yeah. You yeah, walked for through a brief while, you could buy your ticket at the gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just developed this machine that you buy the ticket at yep. the gate, and then 9-11 happened, and the, like those yeah. machines disappeared before, like... Oh, so yeah, when I lived in, I, then I got in the Disney program, I moved uh, down here, and then for a while when I was living in Burbank, writing on Disney shows, um, I would decide in the morning I'm going to go spend the day in Vegas, and I'd go to the Burbank Four, airport. 45 minutes. Yeah. 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 I, I hate flying, and I, my, my hometown is here in Vegas, we split our time between here and Vegas, and um, when I was living here, my mom was living in Vegas, uh, that I know every bump on that route. I know every bit of turbulence. <laughs> and you're gonna. I know if they're coming. It's a to, very turbulent route. Yeah, it it is. Be, but yeah. and the approach over Lake Mead is like really bumpy. <laughs> I hate flying. I I'm like a nervous flyer on every other thing. But I like. It's like getting on a bus. It is. It's yeah. the sky. Yeah. yeah. You only have you to worry when you and then yeah. you end up on the other side. When you look in the back <laughs> and the flight attendants praying. That's. <laughs> oh yeah. That's when you need to be concerned. But if the flight attendants are still doing and, their thing. And, and, and let's let's turn this into the air travel. <laughs> 
Yeah. Because when PSA was, was flying, it mm-hmm. was like like twenty five bucks or whatever. <laughs> and you just and like you, yeah, like you say, you yeah. just walk up, throw your money down, walk on the plane. And you're yeah, like, fantastic. <laughs> were you, when you were in Berkeley, were you like <coughs> part of anything going on in? Like culturally in the city, or are you just like school, 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 school. Pretty much school, school, school. Um, mm-hmm. There was always something being protested. So if you wanted some action, right? <laughs> well, I could see what's happening on Sproul right. Plaza. Is there something to protest? Um, yeah, I didn't. I I was not. I was not really actively involved right. in anything except studying. Um, Which but, is why you're here talking to us. Now. <laughs> well, what years? I'm trying to. What years? I was there from eighty two to ninety two. Okay, so you were there first, and I'm obsessed with Bay Area punk. So like. <laughs> I would think, yeah, you were around there for a lot of good stuff. But if you're like working on a grad degree and yeah, doing stuff yeah. like that. I'm thinking, I'm thinking from my my experiences in academia and uh, and you know hearing other people's experiences in doing you know, like anthropology and archaeology stuff. I imagine linguistics is probably something where your head's down a lot and mm-hmm. you're just working. Yeah, I was doing a lot of working, but I was also just like that was just me. Like I, I, I wasn't socialized <laughs> well you, like you said like you said you you pretty much grew up on the academic track right so yeah. that's your lifestyle yeah. you know yeah but Berkeley I mean you I, mean, I was living in a student co-op with 27 people and and the 70s were just in the rearview mirror and you know Berkeley and, and the 70s in Berkeley were still the 60s um, <laughs> right, right, right. so there was still this great sense of activism and and it, it was a town where nobody owned a TV um, and were a holes about it, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it. It still had a great communal. We're here to make something bigger and better out of the world, and like it had a great spirit to it. And People's Park was still sitting there, like just a symbol of you know taking down the man. And, um, <laughs> I love Berkeley. I love the energy of it. I love the feel of the place, and and that that sense of like young people accomplishing things with big dreams and. It was all for the good. It yeah. was all great. I loved it. Yeah, as much as I mock that sort of thing, because my, 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 one of my good friends um, did his undergrad at Berkeley in Near Eastern Archaeology, and uh, um, uh, I just give him crap about it. <laughs> but, so I'm like, I'm like, you know, my knee-jerk reaction is like, meh, burpee, burpee, burpee. <laughs> but, It was, it was, you, you It does seem like, it. I mean, one of the things that I appreciate about, like, the comedy scene specifically is that feeling that there are just really talented people out there doing whatever it is that makes them, you know, happy and, and you know, everybody's not necessarily angling to get an advantage. They're angling to do something good. Right. You know, and that kind of community. And yeah, that really is, is what it felt like. Were you, did you study, it, like, were you doing dinosaur archaeology or cultural? Paleontology. Different. Dinosaur bones. Right, you were right. That's not archaeology. I'm very excited about dinosaurs, too. Well, I took a lot of paleontology in school, but I also took a lot of ancient Greek stuff. And like, where were you digging? Um, uh, my uh, my, I, I like historic archaeology um, because the ineffable part of you, when you have an assemblage of you know stone flakes, mm-hmm. that's all you can say about it. Somebody right. stopped here and made a tool, and here's right. the you know the the big joke is you know must have had some sort of religious significance because right, right, you right. you know anything that's you know. That's the joke. That's the hack right, archaeology right, thing. Sure. So if you don't know what it is or what it right. does, it obviously was some ritual thing. Right. Because then, then the explanation, the need for explanation stops. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And and that to me was never. I, I'm. I think. Um, what's the word? Impartial enough 
that if I can't say that for certainty this was a projectile point, this was for you know stabbing an animal or stabbing a person. We know we can figure that out. Um, I'm okay with not knowing whether that's we're never going to know why somebody stopped here and and knocked rocks together but historic archaeology can actually tie to people and what they did so when you look at an assemblage of artifacts from say a mining town and you're finding children's shoes and you know artifacts uh, you know uh, women's artifacts corset stays and things like that if you're finding corset stays and no children's stuff they were probably prostitutes or or, you know washerwomen and you that's the thing is it's the story of dead people's garbage and that was my joke is is it's my, my joke about archaeology, I know I've done this on the show before, is uh, it's just like Indiana Jones, except replace um, Ark of the Covenant with dead people's garbage and Nazis with rednecks. So we would fight rednecks for the opportunity to dig up dead people's garbage. Oh, I love it. That's um, fantastic. But that's the thing. is all you're, you're basically taking the stuff that people left behind that survived and trying to figure out what they did. And historic archaeology allows you to tie that to, you know, people's letters and right. and county records and things like that so when mm-hmm. you say you know you see something in the newspaper saying you know barn raising at the joneses right. and then you go out to that pasture and that's now a flat field and you wow. find the barn you can say well horace johnson had that barn raising and that was in 1866 and it made the paper and you can tie that all together and it means something it's a lot more significant than just saying we know people right. wandered around and tried to live, lived in the dirt like pigs was the other joke. <laughs> my, 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 my joke was I'm going to write a book that's, they lived in the dirt like pigs, 50,000 years of archaeology. Because <laughs> that's what most people do is they just grub around. Even today, we basically grub around. Oh, you know, cool. we're, we're a little more clean <laughs> right, and we're a little healthier and our food is in big stores, right. but we're essentially you know, doing the same things. So, but tying it all together is important to me. And if there's things you can't tie together, I'm not as interested in. Well, what about something like I, I used to watch the show that where they would just sort of in, amateur, or not amateur, the archaeologists in England would go, okay, we know there was a Roman settlement in this area, yeah. and we think we know where it was, and we're going to go. So it's historical. I mean, these people had written records yeah. and stuff, but but you couldn't find the historical event, a specific historical event, like you're talking about a barn raising and then go find it. Like, yeah, you know. yeah. Well, that was just kind of like, that was a, I mean, I, I like that. I like that example <laughs> yeah. very much because you tie it to a day and a... Yeah, and there are some things you can yeah. absolutely do that too. And But, you know, most of it is kind of squishy. But it's different in Europe and the Near East um, because there's... Not to say that there's aren't there aren't layers upon layers out here, uh, oh, but but it's yeah. really the, that population density has been. Yeah, you go to Troy, and covered and covered and covered. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's like you 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 could find sites by the fact that all the heaped up garbage from <laughs> thousands of generations of people living you know living there makes a hill after a while. Right, yeah. You start on a flat plain and you end up on a hill, and it's all midden. It's all you know. <laughs> Night soil and I did a dig in uh, Stymphalia in Greece, and it's all a grid system where even if you find something awesome, you can you're only allowed to dig down six inches, so you can't delineate the thing you found. You have to leave it there until you get to the end of your hundred meter row, and then you can come back and hopefully. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, because you don't want to just be. I mean, the way the way that it is so layered. Chunked yeah. into Troy, mm-hmm. like, well, but that's but see that's old school archaeology. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's the other you know the joke is uh, Indiana Jones from um, I think the the Last Crusade is that's an important artifact and it belongs in a museum. It may, that might have been from one of the earlier movies, but I remember it being 
I think he's when, when he's on the deck of the ship and it's the Cross of Coronado, and he's, that's an important artifact and it belongs in a museum. That is old school archaeology, where it's all about the artifacts. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the human side of it, right. the anthropological side mm-hmm. of it. It's about a collector's mentality, where all you, you know, you're going to do is right. you're going to dig a pit right. and you're going to pull all the cool stuff from Troy out, and you're going to say, this is the stuff that Homer talked about, and right. it's a golden plate. And all these potsherds, which actually tell you what people ate, how they ate it, mm-hmm. where they ate it from, yeah. that's really interesting. It's like, were they eating olives imported from, you know, islands nearby? And, you know, can you trace those amphorae to, you know, all the way to France? Why don't you just go to the bar at Whole Foods? They have olive bar right there. Exactly. <laughs> all joking aside, mm-hmm. did they have a central repository where they kept all their food? Did they actually have a granary? Or were they, you know, I mean, all those questions are things that you can answer with our It's family. an extremely studious yeah. show. We studied... Archaeology and entomology and linguistics. Yeah. Yeah. This is the science podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to like, I want to carve away as many. I, I want to yeah. make this the most. I'm going to make a checklist. <laughs> right, right. Um, I but, wanted to ask about the. Um, I, I remember we were talking about series finales and. It occurred to me, I mean, you were on Buffy, there was a whole season finale that was going to be series finale, and then all of a sudden we're changing networks. And right. what was the experience? Like, I don't think we ever thought that was going to be the finale. Like, I, I don't remember, uh, like, oh, we're going away and we're coming back. Um, I think we knew that transition was coming up. Um, the things that happened at the end of season five, no, w- w- like the end of season five was going to be what eventually became the end of season seven. Mm-hmm. So that definitely tells me, like, <laughs> doing the, the anthropology of my um, <laughs> That we we were sort of headed towards season five maybe being the ending and then realized no no we're going to go longer and so the ending got pushed back mm-hmm. uh, and we got to design you know our college years yeah um, yeah so that so was, yeah. the the network changing that didn't have anything to do with it because no. it was a UPN show that became CW show right um trying to remember no see it was a WB show yes that right. became CW I guess okay. although I guess well, I thought CW was a later. Yeah, because wasn't that UPN and CW merged? Or I, I don't know. I don't remember I how it that, happened. All I know is that most of the other shows were garbage. And <laughs> you didn't like Homeboys from Outer Space? <laughs> well, besides that. Um, well, I think my Homeboys from Outer Space fanfic page. <laughs> <laughs> I, it didn't... You know, we... A really good showrunner insulates the writers from stuff like that. The writer's experience is generally... Um, uh, come in and do your work um, and you don't have to sweat uh, conflicts with or between the actors, conflicts with and between the network, like all that stuff is kept neatly away um, I envy that that. and so I don't remember there being any particular trauma or anything about changing networks, cool. it just was a seamless process for us, I'm sure Joss and Marty had to deal with a lot more nitty gritty of like, <laughs> we're getting notes from different people now or whatever, Yeah. Um, but in a way that's all it would be, was we're getting notes from different people sure. and we have slightly different expectations of what they want the show to be, they want more or less serialized but um, certainly we were protected and we just we just turned in drafts that's awesome so yeah, yeah so you basically you just needed to know I, I'm showing up right and I'm getting right. paid right yeah and and I get to write this continue to write this awesome show right, right, right. and like the show won't won't suddenly not be Joss's vision it was always very clear that the show was Joss's vision through and through no one was interfering with that and yeah. we would get to write um, the show it should be I, I think that I wish that more networks would say okay we're gonna 
we're going to be with the coolest cable network ever. Well, how are we going to do it? Well, let's hire Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams and Ronald D. Moore and just give them all money to write a show. We'll put it on the air no matter what it is. Just run with your vision. Seems like that would be the coolest network ever. <laughs> HBO kind of did that with uh, with uh, with uh, David Milch and they got John from Cincinnati. And after Dead, 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 after Dead, which, and which Dead is Horses. which is deeply beloved by a certain yeah yeah yeah, but but not but yeah. not a knock it out of the park right. It I wasn't mean, for yeah, everybody. You you probably yeah you will get shows that aren't for anybody that yeah. way, but you will get the coolest niche shows. Ever. Yeah yeah yeah. 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 Um, that's true, and you probably have to expect with anything. You know, they say you know eighty percent of anything is crap. Well, you get those guys, maybe twenty percent of everything is crap. The There's surgery. a small amount of crap, but there, it's, it's certainly possible that you could you could end up with a show where where even a brilliant showrunner after a few yeah. episodes goes, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure I, that this is the thing I want to say. Um, but you're you're going to eventually you get those those yeah. brilliant. People. Well, you're not going to ever find out if you don't have that, right. you know, uh, incubator. Yeah, and you want you've got writers who write like a house of fire when they're impassioned about a project. So let them create a project that they're truly passionate about and stand out of the way. I, I mean, which is the era we're getting to now with with online shows. Like I feel yeah. like like I am getting to make husbands sort of what Brad and I are passionate. The story which we're passionate about telling, and nobody's telling us different. So you're going to sort of get to see the purest expression of what we want to do. And I think that's partly why I think it, it's so shiny. Well, that's really the rule of awesome management in any field. Like, let the people who are right. awesome at doing something do what they're awesome at and Is leave them alone. The rule of awesome management? Did yeah, you the rule of awesome time? management. It's fantastic. I'm going to so write, come up, we actually, I'm gonna actually, write the book. It's going to be one page. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think micromanagement to no good end is always the death of anything good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like very rarely, I think, and if you're, if you're that kind of auteur, you should just be doing it yourself. You shouldn't be delegating it if you can't delegate, you right. know, that kind of thing. Because yeah. you're talking about Joss Whedon and, and, and you know, if I recall from what I've read, he had the beats that he wanted to hit for his arcs of the story of the big things but did you just basically say and then you guys fit that no very much not it was very much uh, almost every beat of every story came from Joss's brain Mm -hmm. Um, we would um, we'd watch him break the stories and I'm sure he was going like why aren't they helping more Um, but in (laughs) fact like it was at its best when it came out of his brain Uh Um, and, and, and we would try very hard to get ahead of, you know, we'd figure out where it was going and we'd try to, to run ahead and say like, is this where you're going to us? Can we help? And it's just like his brain just went faster and stronger than mine, certainly. Um, and like, there was no way to anticipate the awesome, mostly what you did was you just wait and you wait for it to fall and you would try to catch it in your little hands. Like there's another chunk of awesome that just flew out of Joss. (laughs) Who's going to get there first? Well, those characters were more or less his family, you know, because he created them. So Mm -hmm. you guys were sort of, uh, I guess it seems like you were brought in as like the in-laws. Well, we were brought in to facilitate his vision, which is actually how it works on most shows and like Mm -hmm. almost all great shows is that there is a vision and there's a person with that vision and you are not there to find the way to get your vision on the screen. You were mm-hmm. there to facilitate their vision. Um, uh, my friend Rich, who was at the Nerdist mm-hmm. panel when you were there last week, said it very articulately about you. You're not there to write the best script 
uh, of this show. You're not there to write the best script you can write. You're there to write the script that the showrunner right. sees as the best yeah, script yeah. for that show. Just serve right. the best purposes yeah. of someone who may not be you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I actually really love that. I love having a boss. I love being a good second lieutenant. I love just, you know, hand me a broken story and I will go give you scenes that I think are very sparkly. Um, I liked it a lot more than shaping the vision until we got to husbands where it's like, okay, this one, this one is my vision. Right. Like I really ha- have feel, well, between me and Brad, I feel like we have ownership of this sure. concept and we, and we love it. And we, this time we're the ones with little pieces of awesome flying out of us. Yeah. Right. But most of my career, I've been very happy to catch the pieces. Um, Cause I think that one of the things I do really well is flesh out, um, you know, find the fun way to, to, make that little piece of awesome look good on mm-hmm. in yeah. every scene. I think that's the thing that's so exciting about television in general, but uh, especially right now, is that the the idea of collaboration, you have so many different brains working on something that uh, that unlike maybe a feature or something where someone could sit in a room hypothetically and uh, hide out and write it all by themselves with the blinds right, right. shut tight that uh, you have all of these different brains working on it, so it can only get better. That's true. It's a combination of those two things. It's the strong visionary at the center, and then, yeah, it's people around the edges who can who can figure out a way to flesh out that vision in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Buffy had an amazing staff, and I think we all were very good at that, at finding what Joss was getting at and, and bringing it to the screen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, we sure had fun. That was a great job. And you know that there's this illusion that product equals process. That if the characters on screen are having fun, the writers must be having fun. <laughs> oh, it's God. not. You know, like I can't, like, that, yeah. that's, that's like a, such a foreign idea. I can't. Even, I can't even think why people would think that. Yeah. But I still remember. If you don't get to ask this so much anymore, the public is savvier. But early in my career, all the time I'd be asked, "Which character do you write for?" And mm, people had this notion that if it's a show. About, you know, Buffy Buffy would have those big Scooby Gang scenes where they'd be working out what they were going to do next, and it'd be seven people in a room, and they'd go, oh, and it's written by seven people in a room. Well, why wouldn't I assume that their process it's, is... It's, 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 it's like a, it's a role-playing game, and all the writers <laughs> yeah, are in right. there. And yeah. The, yeah and Joss is the DM. <laughs> <laughs> For a long time, that was sort of the assumption. Yeah. And Joss talked about... Hilarious. When he wrote on Roseanne, people would ask him which character he wrote for. And he had this joke about, like, um, oh, yeah, I write for Darlene. And, you know, I'll come in in the morning and I'll say, well, I don't know what the rest of you guys are doing in the scene. Here's, here's Darlene, my... Darlene's line is, that's not pudding. And, <laughs> so, you know, you guys, work yeah, work, work toward that. <laughs> Shaky Town Radio is a 100% DIY podcast. We have no sponsors. Gene and I pay for our expenses out of pocket. That includes disk space to store the files, bandwidth for you to download the show, an external hard drive where we keep all the recordings, even snacks for the guests. But we do accept donations from our friendly and generous listeners. So if you are currently employed, if you've enjoyed our podcast, if you have a couple bucks you can throw our way, just go to shakytownradio.com slash donate, click on the PayPal button, and throw some money our way, and we'll keep bringing you these chats, these conversations, these in-depth interviews with creative folks living in Los Angeles and pursuing their passions. That's what Gene and I are doing. We're pursuing our passions, and we appreciate all the help we can get.
the meantime, uh, may I ask you about your experience with the ABC Disney Fellowship? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, ABC Disney Fellowship is a fantastic opportunity to um, get new people in the business and um, a little more diversity in the writing base, which is desperately needed. Um, you can find it if you go look online for ABC Writers Fellowship or ABC Talent Diversity Program. Mm-hmm. You'll find it. Um, and it used to be very much sort of anyone with a script and a dream could apply. They've tightened up the rules a little. You have to have some industry experience and like a letter from an industry professional. Yeah. Um, so it has become much more useful as a secondary step uh, toward getting into the business, with the first step being moving to L.A. and getting a job often as a writer's assistant or an assistant of some variety, or just moving to L.A., you know, work at the Gap, but... Be, belong to a writer's group like Script Writers Network, um, enter writing competitions, um, and yeah, try to get that industry experience, try to become a set PA or, you know, any sort of... Yep, Brody. <laughs> yeah, what? The, have you been a set PA? No, no, no. no. <laughs> my, my... Brody chronically underemployed. And, uh, and... Well, here's the thing. I, I got, I came, when I came here five years ago, um, I, the first job was for The Simple Life, the Paris Hilton Show, and I'd just been in the, the reality you show. You <laughs> <laughs> wrote Paris. You're right. <laughs> uh, I've just been in the reality show field for years, and I'm, I'm I've landed now on a show that I actually like, and it's because it's not so much a reality show; it's a sports show. It's MMA. Oh, cool! And so, I, sports is completely divorced from reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where I mean, whereas yes, there's the reality of the guys in the house and what they're doing before they train for their fights. Uh, really, like the main attraction is the fight. Right. And I'm just helping my little part to facilitate that show being on the air, which is great. But like, I came here to write Breaking Bad, you know, right. or whatever. Yeah. But, but it sounds like you are the kind of person for whom this program is really designed. Like you, you would have that industry experience. You could get that letter, um, and then you know, you are one. Now the the pool, the competition is winnowed way down because it used to be open to anyone. Um, now, now you are one of the few people who is qualified to apply. So, um, this, this is very good for people like you who have been putting in the effort. Um, so you don't just need the script and the dream, you need the script and the dream and the persistence and the initiative to have gotten yourself here and to have gotten into the fringes of the business. So within the program, did you work on a whole bunch of different shows or did they love you and they kept you locked into one because it's a year long program? It's a year long program, but you're not working on shows, you're writing spec scripts. So you, um, you, you, under the guidance of Disney executives, you write specs for various shows or spec pilots, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, you are guest lectured by showrunners and at, at some point during the course of that first year, I guess it's not just a one year program now, when I got in, it was a two year program, um, they send your scripts to their showrunners and they let those showrunners know you can have this person in your writer's room for free the fellowship will pay them you don't have to pay them mm-hmm. so most fellows get placed on a show nice. but okay. generally it's sort of toward the end of your year mm-hmm. and um, so so there is no opportunity for them to place you on more than one show right. um, you, you, you find your show and you settle in and you hope you stick and that, that when you're out of the program they'll want to pay to keep you there and were you placed on a show and then how did you make the jump from being a fellow to a I don't I know what's the next thing after fellow. A real a staff writer. Associate. A staff writer. Staff yeah. writer. Associate. Um, yeah, I was. I was placed on two shows. I was placed on Dinosaurs. I wasn't actually employed by Dinosaurs. I was there as the Disney fellow, and the show had already been canceled. They were down to like the last ten episodes when I was put there. So that's why I was there for the writing of that. Right, right, right. Um, and so then it ended, and I was still in the fellowship. So they put me on Monty, which was a Henry Winkler sitcom, which was great fun. 
Um, very, very hard work. Um, and yeah, nobody remembers Monty. No, <laughs> where our friend, uh, the king of TV, Paul Goebel, is... He loves that show, Monty. Really? But he's a big Henry Winkler fan. Wow. And I think he just uses it for his uh, Six Degrees of Henry Winkler game, where he can connect oh, any okay. TV person. And oh, Monty uses a lot because I think... Uh, David Schwimmer. Yeah, I was going to call him Ross, <laughs> So but then yes, how many Schwimmer. degrees are between Henry Winkler and Kevin Bacon? Uh, probably, probably one. Probably one. one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're best yeah, friends. They go golfing together. They could. <laughs> Plus, um, everybody that went through Happy Henry. Days, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the tons of people, character actors. The two sons on the show were David Schwimmer and David Cromholmes, who went on to star in Numbers. So there's a huge... Number three years? Number three years, that's right. Pet beef, hate that. Hate it, hate it, So you were on Monty and Dinosaurs while you were fellow. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Oh, sorry. Sidebar. Is there a word for that? There's got to be a word for that. For what? what? At using a number, and a numeral instead of a, a letter. Uh, yeah, that's um, um, alpha, alpha. Um. <laughs> God damn. Uh, I, I know I should be able to coin a word with Latin roots that gives you that right, gives right. you exactly that meaning, and you would believe that that was the word for it. Because there's a word for there's a word for when you like you know you know uh, thinking of. Uh, We'll work it out after, and then no, we'll just right, rub right, it right. in. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so it sounds like we came up with it right away. So, yes, yeah, so I was working on Monty, um, and then, yeah, the transition to real-life staff writer. Um, I, th- I think at a certain point, Monty started paying me to show up instead of just the fellowship paying me. Uh, cool. If not, the first paid job would have been the next one up, which was Me and the Boys, mm-hmm. where I was actually hired to be a staff writer, and Me and the Boys was Steve Harvey as the uh, widowed father of three sons, um, and it was a, a very... It was a lovely little sort of family sitcom. Very, I, I had a good time there too. But again, very hard work. Very late nights. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two transitions I'm interested in. One is becoming um, instead of like you were on Buffy and Angel as well. Um, and then it seems looking at the your resume, were you, were you at one point kind of like a hired gun? Whereas you, know, you weren't necessarily on a staff, but like it's like we wanted Jane Espenson episode. Right. I have, uh, this is interesting, I've sort of had, t- there are two good chunks in my career that could be described that way. Sort yeah. of. Um, yes, in recent years, I have become someone who will go do an episode of a show if mm-hmm. they want me. So I did an episode of Game of Thrones in season one, and that was very much just a hired gun where they were giving one script away, yeah. and I like won the, oh my god, Hollywood lottery of getting the person who got to go in and write a, a Game of Thrones. Um, fantastic. Best what what episode did you write? I wrote the Golden Crown. Nice. The and gold on the guy's I, I should have just known that. <laughs> I don't do my homework. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was so cool. I was very lucky. So, yeah, that has happened to me in recent years. One, since my name sort of got known. Yeah. Doing sci-fi, your name gets known, which yeah. is just a weird artifact of sci-fi. Um, but I had an early experience, very early in my career, where I was writing freelance just because I hadn't got staffed. Okay. So I wrote an episode of Nowhere Man and my episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and that was totally not because anybody wanted the Jane Espenson experience. That was because people, kind people, were helping me Very out cool. and letting yeah. me come yeah, in yeah. and read in a year when I was unemployed. Okay. Yeah. So what point do you and how, and what does it in, consist of of these like EP credits, co executive producer, right. executive producer right. credits? Um, and I'm sure it was also helpful for when you were ready to launch Husbands because you were on that side of it too, but. What? How does a writer end up being also a, a co-EP? This is how it works. It's the craziest system you ever heard of. Hang on to your hair, people, because <laughs> this is crazy. 
you get hired as a staff writer, and you're not considered a producer, you're just a writer on the show, and your title is staff writer. Built into your contract, if the show continues, um, are promotions. Each promotion has a Writers Guild approved level for what your title is going to be. So the year after you are a staff writer, you are a story editor. Even though you don't, what you do has nothing to do with editing and nothing to do with stories beyond what you are doing. You may be doing identical work. Identical work, absolutely. You're you're more than likely identical identical work. work. Yeah. Um, Your next year, you're an executive story editor. Means you supervise all the other story editors. No, it doesn't. It means you're doing exactly the same thing again. It's just you're getting paid one bump higher. The next year after that, you are a co-producer. Now you may think, oh, this is the year in which you actually have made the jump from writer to producer. No, co means not. Co-producer is not a producer. (laughs) Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm no linguist. (laughs) So if your show, if you were working on staff of a show that won an Emmy for best show. Everyone above you would get a statue and you wouldn't, you'd get a, a certificate because you're not a producer on right, the show. Right, right. Next step up is producer, which is the same title that a bunch of other people have on the show who are doing things like scheduling what day a particular scene shoots. Production work. Production, yeah. <laughs> so chances that you may or may not be doing, be producing your own episodes at this point. You may have started when you were a story editor or even a staff writer, or you may not get that chance until you're a co-EP or executive producer. That the when the actual producing duties start coming in is also totally random. The next year you're a supervising producer, the next year you're a co-executive producer. Um, and then you probably top out there until you create a show. That's when you become executive producer. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I am a consulting producer. Right. My writing partner, Brad Bell, is also a consulting producer at VH1's pop-up videos, but it's his first writing job. Yeah. And it's my 20-year right. writing job. So that's another title that's sort of given Consulting producer is sort of a catch-all title mm-hmm. when you're either working part-time on a show or, or for whatever reason, that no other title fits you. You're consulting producer. So you're consulting for one, Once Upon a Time? Yeah. Consulting producer on ABC's or Once Upon a Time. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, it's a fantastic show, Sunday nights, ABC. It's the old um, ABC Wonderful World of Disney time slot. And we yeah, are nice. holding up that tradition because we do you are... you do fireworks in the beginning of the show? <laughs> we should. We should. Um, Make it over. <laughs> we uh, show about um, fairy tale characters, often of whom have been most lovingly rendered by Disney. So um, we do a lot of sort of nods to the Disney interpretations of the fairy tales, which is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, like when we did our Beauty and the Beast episode, we had the chipped cup. It's like, that's not part of the original fairy tale. That's a Disney invention that. It is now. Yeah, it's true. I, was, I sort of had the. Like, I went out to write that episode, and it was like, what What do I want to point at? And I was like, I think I really want to point at the Disney movie. That's most people's oh, yeah, yeah. familiarity mm-hmm. with that story. So let's, people will thrill to that. We're a Disney show, we, so we have the permission from Disney to do that. No one else would be able to do it. Let's roll around in it. It's it's so... Yeah, yeah, use it if pointy. you have it. Why yeah, not? yeah, so powerful. Considering, you know, Disney's pretty tight with their intellectual properties, if you have the opportunity to do that... The people in brand management at Disney have been so (laughs) kind to us. They've let us do things, you know, Snow White holding a sword and, and, oh gosh, Cinderella, like... And Cinderella's fairy godmother dies in the opening scene of an episode. Spoiler alert. Well, she's blasted back to fairyland. Um, But, yeah, like, we do stuff with the characters that we introduce an eighth dwarf, you know, like, I mean, yeah, eighth dwarf. Wait, are there an eight and we added a nine? Like, 
been doing it. Eight now sounds like the normal amount of dwarves. Like I've been <laughs> right, right, right. eight dwarves. There's, you know what though? I'm, I'm willing to bet that there are more dwarves than the seven. That oh, is not. Yeah, a, that yeah. is just you know. It's That's probably not even that. a representative sample. Lazy, right. schlubby. Right. 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 Oh. Yeah, we introduced stealthy. Stealthy. Awesome. Yeah. The ninja dwarf. <laughs> But we, when we were first, when we were talking in the room about adding an eighth dwarf. Like the joke in the room was sexy. <laughs> we're gonna add sexy. Oh, God. I think that would be awesome, though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Peter Dinklage. Pe- so good. Peter Dinklage. <laughs> I gotta say. Yeah. I'm on board with Peter Dinklage. Oh my God, that was the fun, the coolest thing about writing for Game of Thrones was knowing I was writing for Peter, Peter Dinklage. And he is just like I. I, I so much. And, awesome. And having read the books. And then I'm like, yeah, he's Tyrion Lannister. Yeah, that works absolutely. for me. Done. There's I, no. I almost feel that that show could not have been done to its full justice before Peter Dinklage was with us. Yeah. And, well, you know, and the other the, the the thing too is having read all the books, I'm like watching the show and like spoiler alert. Well, I, I, people may not have watched Game of Thrones, and since it's replaying and it's going to be on tonight, tomorrow, what day? Sunday. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I won't say it, but, you know, when a major character gets killed, like, a major character that everyone loves, who's been in a lot of movies everyone loves, who, you know, it's like, my wife's like, what? I'm like, oh yeah, wait. (laughs) Just wait. We're not even into the part where (laughs) everybody dies. (laughs) It's like, we're going to get to a part where... All those characters, you like, they're all gonna die. Well, that's where, yeah, the daddy dinosaur comes out and explains. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I screwed up. Yeah. But talk about, I mean, well, again, I think it's the difference between, you know, literature and, and writing. TV literature is George R. R. Martin wrote The War of the Roses in a fantasy setting. And in England, medieval England, people just died. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like they were poisoned, they were thrown into rivers, they were beaten to death, mm. they were stabbed. I mean, it's just like, and everybody dies. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it was so fun seeing the, the reaction to that because there were these two groups of fans, the ones that knew the books and the ones that didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to just watch the polarized reactions I, to and, it was fantastic. And I, you know, it's like, I knew it, but it's still like, <laughs> yeah, it's to still see it happen. Yeah. And, and that's, I think the, that's the awesome part about having read the books is, I know what's coming, and I'm like, I want to see what's coming. I want to see, I know what's going to happen, and I need to keep my mouth shut so I don't spoil it for the wife. But other than that, I want to see, this, I, how are they going to do this? Yeah. It's oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, because they realize it all so gorgeously. And okay. that's another thing about that I'm so proud about with Once Upon a Time is that we write things that should be unshootable, and then the crew up in Canada finds a way. They find, sometimes it's a virtual set, sometimes it's just... The most gorgeous vista, snow-choked vista you've ever seen, because right. they found it up there north right, of Vancouver right, yeah. somewhere. And They're like, oh yeah, we got mountains like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just like you'll just when we put the dailies in, and it's sort of this snowy hillside as far as the eye can see, and the, you know mountains, and it's just the most gorgeous thing, and it's real. It's like like that's not painted. That's, that's all a seashell. <laughs> yeah, it's you can't tell a lot of times what's what's fake and what's real because yeah. the real is so pretty. What were we watching the other day? And it was, oh, uh, Doctor Who, the new run of Doctor Who's on Netflix, and I hadn't seen it yet. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is kept true to the Doctor Who looking slightly cheesy all the time. The, I think the <laughs> inexpensive production. <laughs> right, but, right, yeah. right. But it's funny because, like, because uh, Tish had never heard of Doctor Who at all. And I'm uh. like, okay. This is England Star Trek. This has been right. running forever. It ran forever. There was a hiatus, and 
But it, if Star Trek was cheap and cheerful, but looked expensive, Doctor Who was cheap and cheerful and never looked like they spent any money. <laughs> it looked like the BBC gave them, like, you know, here's a hundred quid. Go make a TV show. <laughs> yeah, it was actually very interesting working at Torchwood in its American season here, working with stars. Um, because they said they had more money to spend and more attention to that stuff, but they lost their speed maneuverability. And so there was, um, you know, the producers would would be thrilled with what they could get, but also startled at what they couldn't easily do. Um, to sort of jump in with a small crew and grab a shot in mm-hmm. a, in a hard to get to location was impossible. Like right. it's everywhere you go, you're bringing 300 people and trailers. Yeah, it's a yeah, production. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it really is. You've yeah. gone from being you know bandits who travel with a saddle bag to right. trailers and right. garbage yeah. and helicopters yeah. and cranes. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, yeah, they were so happy to have helicopters, but also like, what do you mean we can't just put a camera in the driver's seat of a car and shoot this car scene? Like we could, that's what now, we do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, it was, <laughs> that's it's really interesting. interesting. Yeah, but it's funny the the Doctor Who thing. Just you know, I'd forgotten how and it brought all those memories of watching Doctor Who when I was younger back. Of yeah, that was crummy, <laughs> really crummy. I mean, it was great and the shows were great back then. But I think it, yeah, there's a certain kind of show that's sort of idea driven. And original Star Trek's one and Doctor yeah. Who I think is one yeah. where where you can be more forgiving of that because it's not driven by the the it's driven by the idea. And and as long as the idea comes through, the the main power of the episode. That's kind of was my problem with Next Generation is because they were trading on an established brand at that point that everybody loved and there was money behind, and the sets looked like the Hilton, like you know, like a, this was built in 1979 and it's plush velour. And it's just like, and I may have talked about this. I know I've talked about this with people before, but I don't know if they've done it on the show. But the National Lampoon had a. Um, a Parody that they wrote when I think Wrath of Khan had just come out, and it was it was a excerpt from Star Trek six or seven Wrath of the Trout, <laughs> which is way before they actually got up to that. Right, yeah. um, but they had the ship's Farrah Fawcett playing the ship's barmaid and Gary Coleman playing the ship's patent attorney. And when Next Generation came out, I'm like, they're almost there. And when they yeah. introduced this is the ship's counselor, and then when they introduced Whoopi Goldberg, I'm like, they have a ship's barmaid. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, but I loved it. It got me my start. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah. but it's idea driven, but it's also was more polished, and it right. just seemed like less yeah. cheap and cheerful and. But you've seen those equivalencies, I'm sure, between uh, who on the love boat is who on Star Trek. <laughs> I love those. Those always make me laugh because they're pretty good. Yeah. Go, yeah. Okay, yeah, we've got bald captains, black uh-huh. bartenders. Like, like, this is really... <laughs> the Isaac, I'm doing cool. the Isaac thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if Whoopi Goldberg had done that, <laughs> that would have been... I would have been in. I would have been 100% in. Um, we got a couple questions from... Um, the Twitter? The Twitter. You can always Ooh. tweet us. Us at Shaky Town Radio. Sometimes we try to let you know in advance about guests who will be here, so that you can. Sometimes we surprise people. Yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. we surprise people. But so yeah, keep follow us at Shaky Town Radio, so you can uh, do this. We have uh, since we were talking about uh, uh, Once Upon a Time. Um, so this comes from Bad Wolf Lil. At Bad Wolf Lil. Oh, that um, sounds like a torture fan. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be. Bad, um, Bad Wolf is. Yeah. Um, wouldn't that be funny if that was just their name? <laughs> <laughs> what are we? I'm a fan, but yeah. 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 Uh, 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 Jane, I know you're involved with uh, Once Upon a Time, but are you going to write any games of Game of Thrones this season? I would love to. Call me Game of Thrones. Um, no, I, I'm... <laughs> they do listen. Everyone involved. <laughs> 
I am fully employed, um, but boy, I would I would love to continue to be involved. You'd make room in your busy schedule. I would make room, but no, there are there are no plans that I have heard of uh, for me doing more. But um, but I had I had a great time there. I love those guys. Would love to. Awesome, Um, and. I don't have access to the Twitter at the moment uh, for some well, reason. You don't have to. I won't read this one because this. Um, do you have a single line that you're proudest of? This question comes from Alistair Stewart. Do you have a single line or what single line? I'm, I'm, I was going to kind of give you it right. out. Um, I wrote a line for Willow once um, where Buffy confronts her with some arcane witchcraft symbol, and and Willow's trying to defend having drawn it, and she says. It's a doodle. I do doodle. You too. You do doodle too. And I'm, I'm, I always thought that was kind of a masterpiece. <laughs> that is a good line. No. I, I like that one yeah. a lot. Uh, I think that's all. How many, how many takes did it take for, for her to say it? She got that pretty quickly. Okay. Um, it was actually a line that I wrote for... Alison Hannigan is the amazing actress and friend who played Willow. Um... I wrote her a line for the Pangs episode, the Thanksgiving episode, where she had to say something about the cavalry coming. And it was the word cavalry that she mm-hmm. couldn't do. And Did she, she do cavalry? She said cavalry. And once you say cavalry a couple times, you yeah. can't not say yeah. cavalry. <laughs> and and I, I was like, I'm going to have to change this word. Like, we could. And she finally, she, she, she was a trooper. She it's got it. It's the guys on horses coming. Yeah, it's like, it's like if you not try Not the place where they killed Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cavalry. Cal- and yeah, that was that was the, that was the one that was hard. But doodle was fine. Um, but yeah, if you've ever tried, if you've ever gotten the word cholesterol in your head, it's cholesterol. Like it's one of those things where you just can't. That's the whole it. the whole George Bush nuclear nuclear thing. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm willing to cut people slack for that kind of thing because I I and uh, there are, there are words that I mispronounce intentionally that I could like I started as a joke. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm trying to think of one now and I can't, but. Um, but I yeah, you get locked into the. And I don't. I don't usually I do have too. a problem with that sort of thing. But after this conversation, I think my vocabulary is completely ruined. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joss always said poignant as a joke poignant. instead of poignant, and I now I've noticed that I say poignant so naturally that I think there are probably people who think that I think that's how it's. <laughs> oh yeah. The one, the one that uh, this was years ago when I was in Vegas or something, and um, uh, was with a good friend of mine, and. I said, well, it's not my forte. And he said, it's fourth. Yeah. And I was, I, and, and it's, I was so scandalized by that because I like to think that I, you know, I have a decent vocabulary and I, you know, obey the rules of pronunciation. He was looking at me really intently when he said that, by the way. <laughs> uh, Brody mispronounces things all the time and I take him to task for it. I do not. <laughs> you just sound Canadian. Now. Yeah, that was really Canadian. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah, that one. But that's one. That's one where you start to go. Well, language is what people speak. I mean, mm-hmm. linguistics is right. descriptive, not prescriptive. Right. And at a certain point, if everyone thinks it's forte, if it, it is forte. forte. Yeah. Well, and it's mm-hmm. and it's in yeah. it's in the reference materials right. as an alternate pronunciation now. But yeah. I'm an a hole about it <laughs> because I was confronted right. with that, and it's like, no, that's not how it sounds. Like, yeah. My big struggle at work is just because, and no one's going to know the difference when they hear it. But when we're transcribing some things, like I write all right, a l r i g h t, and everybody else writes it as two all words, right. all right. And for a while, just like those guys are so dumb. And then I looked up, I was like, oh, I'm the one bastardizing the language. Yeah, it's supposed to be two words, but that's another one where now things have loosened up and. The, the correct thing used to be two spa- to move to punctuation, two spaces between sentences, and now 
Now the correct is apparently actually one space between sentences. Like is the it? correct slid out from under me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. See, I always take out a space on, on Twitter. I automatically double space. Right. And I'm like, oh, take it out. I, I need, I need yeah. four more characters. Yeah. I, I, early on in Twitter, I joke that I'm going to write out the word ampersand <laughs> yeah. in my tweets instead of using the symbol just as a handicap. <laughs> yeah, I actually do a similar thing, which is I often will write out something I could abbreviate because I want, yeah, I want to overachieve. I want to show that, look, I don't have to resort to cute abbreviations to get my thoughts across. That I sounds like a, a Steve Martin tweet to write out the word. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, thank you, because I thought of it first. <laughs> you, uh, you should give that to him. That would be generous. <laughs> Steve, you can have this. Yeah. Uh, now, speaking of the internet, um, you, that's my great Zoe, thank you. <laughs> speaking of the internet... Uh, Jane, you had a, a blog, uh, janeespinson.com. Yeah. Uh, you're not updating it currently, but that was like a, a big haven for uh, aspiring writers to get advice. You're now, though, doing um, something in conjunction with Huffington Post? Yeah, I will occasionally post on Huffington Post TV. Um, the most recent thing for, I did for Huffington Post was about um, getting more women in the writers' rooms, and it, I, I'm, I really like that one. Uh, I want to do something now about like, writer's block. Um, but yeah, it's much more occasional. It's every couple yeah. months I'll have a notion. Uh, the blog was something that I maintained for a number of years religiously. Legendary blog. It, it I can people, say that with that, and that's not... Uh, apparently so. Like, it, the blog sat at the center of a maze and, yeah. <laughs> and, people, and, ate, and ate unwary travelers <laughs> that wandered into its clutches. Sort of. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm getting your blog confused with a minotaur. <laughs> but it did minotaur-like things. Um, yeah, it's it, it still sits there, dormant in its maze. Dormant and, people, and labyrinthine. Yeah, people can go to janeespinson.com and look through the archives. They're not really sorted, you know, just chronologically. Go poke around, see if you find something, advice that you like. But I stopped just because I'd said everything. So that's everything I know is in there. Um, and someday it'll become a book or something. Yeah. But... Um, I, yeah, I actually should talk to the one who runs that website for me and set it up as much more of like a welcome to the Janspins and archives with yeah. some sort of icon of like bookshelves or something and be it much more like poke around this because right. it's still sort of sitting there as if waiting to be updated but I don't I don't think that's going to become an active blog again unless something changes in the where I where I suddenly find that I've got a wealth of new information well to you're always convey. learning so. I am always learning or if you go on like some sort of Roseanne Barr like tangent where she Blogs about spirituality and politics now. <laughs> Who knows what's going to suddenly? <laughs> catch. When are you running for We're president? Start doing uh, macadamia nuts. Doesn't yeah. she have a macadamia she does, nut farm? Uh, yeah, yeah, in, in Hawaii, and but now she's running for president. Oh, she knows she's not going to win, but she's there to like press the issues, which I admire that. Gadfly. <laughs> um, the thing that I, I find interesting that you champion is is the sprint, the writer sprint. Yeah. Because um, I think that's you know. As someone who has literally, we are talking about this last night too, I've literally written five lines, like <laughs> two sentences worth of stuff in a month because of the baby and we're up sure, lines, basically. Um, dedicating that block of time is imperative, I think. Yeah, it, it's, I'm, I'm amazed at how few of us get an hour consecutively to focus anymore and so on anything on anything yeah so a mm. twitter sprint is when i just say i'm going to be writing for the next hour join me and and the rules are like you can't tweet you can't go online you can't read your emails you just have to go focus on whatever you're doing and it actually doesn't have to be writing you can clean your apartment or right. knit or work on your outline for your project but just total focus for an hour 
and it's very hard to do. Oh yeah, a yeah. lot of people. I'm going to say that. for me, it's not an impossible. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to get discipline, it, just an not hour my work. Seat. not my fork. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the same thing as meditation. I mean. It's you're meditating right. on a specific thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. yeah but it's the, the naughty monkey in the cage mm-hmm. or is your mind. Don't and... think about a blue elephant. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> it's very monkey. hard. But but people are doing it and they're playing along with me and they'll go away from Twitter for an hour and they'll work on their projects. And so I'm now getting the tweets back or people walking between conventions and saying like, I finished my dissertation. I finished my screenplay. I finished my novel. And it's like. Oh my God, am I causing a spike in productivity? <laughs> I yeah. love that. That's another thing we talked about is uh, deadlines. I am, I am, a, I love the deadline. I love yes. having it. Yeah. That I admire every young person who writes their spec scripts because you're doing it without a deadline. And I know how hard that is. And well, I always, yeah. Uh, yeah, I always want to grab people and say, I'm going to have a table read. Will you guys come join me on this right. date? And, and then the night ready. before, oh, I have to read <laughs> 10 more pages tonight. But, see, for but me, it gets done. But see, yeah. for me, as soon as I get that deadline, I go home and I yeah. do it. I, yeah. I, I, I am I never, not the, like, procrastinator. Yeah. I am, like, because we're the... What's up, I met one of the folks that I had sketch 101 with last night at the bar. And I just thought about it. And it's like, if they said, do a topical sketch on... Something in the news. I would do three, and right. I'd be, boom, yeah. boom, boom, and I'd be yep. and I'd be like, "Oh, they're all done for next week." <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, that's well. Yeah, that. I mean, that night, that Brad and I were talking over dinner. We should do the show, husbands. He went home and wrote that script at four thirty in the morning. Bing, it's in my inbox. Like yeah. he's the same way, and I'm the same way too. Like I want, I don't ever want to be sweating a deadline because what if you get sick or something? Like yeah, do, and it, you do will. it right away. And you yeah. will. <laughs> and you will. <laughs> A good okay. friend of mine, and I'm going to plug him, Zach Ayers, who is a friend of mine from junior high, also a, an excellent writer, actually has the word write uh, tattooed on his hand. Wow. I think it's in, his, t- in Times New right Roman. <laughs> I, think, I think so, actually. Oh. I'm pretty, I'm, Times New yeah. Roman, I was out. <laughs> <laughs> just, really? just to remind career, him, because uh, tying a string around his finger every day got tiresome, so he just got it tattooed on his hand. Scar himself. I would li- I just have right on your right hand and left on your left hand, but right is with a <laughs> is W. With a w. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think that would be so funny. I have another friend who should do that because he's 31 years old and he still does not know his right from his left. And I taught him the thing where you make the L's with your right, fingers right. so when we're driving that he can figure it out. But then what he'll do is I'll say, turn left here. And he'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he'll start turning right. And then his right hand is now making an L. Like, oh, but wait, what? Oh. Come on, you're 31. It's time wow, to, that's a learning disability at that point. It's time yeah, to figure it out. It's it's just, that's a dyslexia thing. Yeah, it yeah. took me a very long time to do like right and left. And I still, I've got a double jointed finger on this hand and I still do that. Do you? Mm-hmm. Right. I have, I have a terrible scar on my left hand. Mm. And up until and I got know. that when I was about 15, up until <laughs> that point, yeah. I would have to think about it. And now it's like, I just have to go like this. I'm like, oh. Yeah. yeah, my dad will still call me Enage sometime because I always wrote my first name Jane backwards. <laughs> yeah. So any of you out there who are struggling with dyslexia, it does not have to be a barrier to a writing career. Yeah. I overcame. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And people can find the show at husbandstheseries.com. That's right. And the they can go there. to the Kickstarter. Yeah, there's a link to the Kickstarter from that page. That's I'm, actually great. Go I'm to husbandstheseries.com, watch it there, and then follow the link to the Kickstarter. Yeah, I'm going to say almost sight unseen if you're a fan of the stuff you the people in the world out there are a fan of the stuff that Jane's done you're going to want to throw 20 30 bucks <laughs> <laughs> that would be lovely because there is um, there is so much more we can do if we have more money um, 
so yeah, we, we set the goal at 50K knowing that was like the minimum we needed to do it plus what I'm putting in. Um, but we, if we had more money, we can give you extra little scene, extra footage, extra vignettes, a more lot better, of behind more the scenes. Better longer. Be, better, longer, better cameras, better sound, better everything. So, yeah. Oh, and, 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 and you will have my gratitude, and you also get some good swag. Tote bags. <laughs> Your tote bags. Yeah. Essentially tote bags. DVDs. DVDs are the new tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> they can explore the archive at janeespinson.com. They can follow you on Twitter. The Maze. Yes, and they can follow at Team Husbands on Twitter as well, which is the official husband's account. Okay, very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, thank this you. This has been fantastic. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to actually, actually thank the Ben Acker, who was like, hey, Gene, it's Gene. It's Gene. <laughs> I don't know why he's like Barney Rubble now. Very nice Ben Acker <laughs> imitation. <laughs> yes, yeah, Acker uh, facilitated this. And so, yes, thank you, Ben. Thank you. And thank you, Libby, for diving okay in today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, well, I just, I never wanted to end. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you mentioned having me sign off with the... Oh, oh so don't, oh, don't spoil it. <gasps> oh, I'm sorry. No, it doesn't. Oh, spoil it. <laughs> uh, well, until next time, thank you again. Thank uh, and uh, I am Gene George. I am Brody Foster Hubbard. I'm Libby Ward. I'm Jane Espenson, and here's what I had for lunch yesterday. I had the spicy beef ramen at the food court at the Century City Mall. Delish. Enjoy. Yay! <laughs> Keep this recording for a second. What is up with the... We had more rounds of applause in the last two episodes. Because <laughs> it's been really good. I guess. Yeah.